How's everybody doing? Yeah. Isn't she cute? I love it when she comes up here. Sonny's like, that better be his wife. <laughs> oh, man, we're in the last week of the book of James. If you've got your Bible, you can turn with me there. We're going to be in 19 and 20. Um, and I'll just warn you ahead of time. Usually you would think, you know, I, I changed gears uh, Friday and Saturday. And uh, you just, I had a really good sermon that I, uh, I, I wanted to preach, but God said, you're not going to preach that one. Um, so I changed gears, which, you know, some of you might think, oh, that, I guess it's going to be a short one today. I didn't have much time to prepare. It's not really how I roll. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not, it's not going to be long. Uh, but, you know, as we dig into this, this passage and as, we, as we've been in the book of James, the book of James is so great because it, it puts us on the ground. I think sometimes we, as leaders and teachers, you come to the book of James and it's hard because especially when your mission statement is we exist to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace and then all of a sudden you hear the bomb of James, you know, saying, hey, you know, faith without works is dead. You better get rolling. You know, something's got to happen. But we realize that, that it's not about your faith rescuing you or saving you. It's this idea that faith works. Like when, when we do have faith, there's going to be a representation. There's a temperature setting thing that happens as we go from death to life in Jesus. Our eyes, like the Holy Spirit begins to drive our eyes away from here and up there. It's not that we don't struggle, and that's why James exists, because we struggle with sin. We struggle with, you know, the brokenness that, that we all walk around on planet Earth. The penalty of sin has been taken care of in the cross. Death, burial, resurrection has wiped away uh, sin and the penalty of sin for those of us that put our faith in Jesus. But the existence of sin and the presence of sin on planet Earth is obvious, that it's still here and it's still a struggle. And James really addresses that. But I was thinking about this. This passage is really all about wandering and what it looks like for the church dealing with somebody wandering away from the faith. And, uh, you know, just the, really looking at the idea of the outsider. Like, what does it look like to... Go after the outsider. And I, I was thinking about you, probably 2016 or 2015, a friend of mine uh, from middle school, high school called me and said, hey man, I wanted to share this with you. I never really told you about this. And this isn't to lift me up in any way. I'm, I'm an idiot on a good day. Um, but this is, I did it right this time, I guess. I didn't even know it. It was kind of maybe just God's providence. But it was in eighth grade and this guy comes to school and he was brand new. And he, he was telling me kind of from his perspective, he said, you know, I walked into the eighth grade, you know, hallway and I had come from another school, private school. And, this, and I went to a private Christian school. And he said, my mom put me there because I had been bullied from sixth grade, seventh grade and part of my eighth grade year. It's just, I just under just a horrible middle school experience. I mean, just really, really bad. And I walk into the hallway and it all started again. Like it was just this inside, it's just a magnet for bullying. And, and I remember this specifically. I remember when he was telling me this, you know, a few years ago. I mean, he came in and like, you know, in the first day of school, you come in and you got your gear, you know what I mean? You went shopping and he came in, everything was new, jeans are stiff, he's got a cool jacket. And people knew his family because they were kind of prominent in Tallahassee and wealthy. And he had real expensive clothes he had one of those puffy jackets, you know, like, you know, you know, little deals like that, you know, this, and today it would be awesome, you know, those spacesuit jackets with the sleeves cut off, like that'd be, you know, jamming, you know, you got 70s and 80s gear now in 2021, you're awesome. But back then it just wasn't cool. Like people were just like, it's too big and just poking it, calling the Michelin man, it was no good. And 
Um, he said, you and your friends, he goes, it was just kind of one of these things. He goes, it wasn't, it didn't seem like a big deal to you at the time, but I realized in retrospect what a big deal it was. You guys kind of intervened and just absorbed me into your crew. And all of a sudden, we all became best friends. And he goes, and I had the best and most wonderful high school experience um, that I could imagine. And it, cha- it literally changed my life. I've been kind of going back through the, the, these impactful things that God's done and the way that he's pulled me in and rescued me where I was an outsider. He made me an insider, like it says in Ephesians, where I was a foreigner and a stranger. And then all of a sudden I was brought into groups of people that, um, that set me on my path and my direction along the way. And they've had an impact in everything that I've done. Now, another piece of the story, this guy became a Navy SEAL, so don't mess with me. Um, but, I, you know, it's incredible. He's, he's talking about the impact of what it means to go from the outside to the inside. And as Christians, for our, and we talk about the wanderer, and that's what we're digging into today in the book of James, our, the essence of what we exist for, that not just Ocean City Church, but the church in general, is to, to be a city on a hill, to let people know to, that they would see that our lives are anchored to something different, that they would see our good deeds and they would worship our Father in heaven that we would have a planet of worshipers, people that would wake up and realize that Jesus saves and nothing else does. It's what we want to do. And we hear a story like that about the outsider becoming the insider, the one that didn't belong all of a sudden becoming the one that does belong. And all of us are excited. We look out at the world and think there's so many people that are hurting, that are broken, that are outsiders, that are lonely. But here's the reality as we dig into this passage. The tension, I think, today is that there's many people that really just don't want to be saved. And certainly in our culture and in our day, they don't want to be saved by the evangelical church or the religious right or all of the things that are branded in the church. You know, that's a beautiful story about my friend. But in reality, are there really people that are on the outside that are feeling like this is going to be the thing that's going to rescue them? So I think for many of us, the the battle of understanding that we're plan A for a dying world the, 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 the battle for us is, does that dying world want to be saved? And what does it look like for me to charge the darkness, so to speak? What does it look like for me to go there and be one of, a part of God's plan? Like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've got this ministry of reconciliation, which all that means is we've been rescued by Jesus, many of us in the room. We've gone from death to life, you know, went, went into the, the grave in his death and were brought back to life in his resurrection spiritually. And now with our new life in Christ, it says that ministry, that, that change in your heart, that filling in your heart is we get to carry this thing in, in our chest out to the world. But does the world really want it? I mean, we're living in a, in a culture where people are not just looking at Christianity with different eyes, thinking that it's branded with all of these different things, but there's also people inside the church that are walking away from the faith, that are deconstructing their faith. We've talked about that, this idea of dismantling, forgetting about any type of orthodoxy that's been in place for over 2,000 years, abandoning that, deconstructing our faith, and, and saying, okay, let's, let's develop a faith that makes sense in our culture. Let's use culture as the filter of developing faith rather than the 100% Word of God, and that's happening time and time again with people that are extremely popular, people that have been on big stages, people that have been preaching in the evangelical world for years are walking away from faith, deconstructing their faith, and coming up with something that's not biblical. So we're in a pretty volatile world. 
So I want to give us that lens as we read this passage in Scripture and the challenge from James here at the end to say this is of utmost importance, but it's not really easy to do. So in verse 19 in James, it says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, that would be the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus saves and nothing else does. I mean, he's been walking through. Wealth doesn't save. The things of earth don't save. You're not going to find it down here is what we talked about last week. Like there, as much as we try, what it is that you're looking for, you're not going to find it down here. And James, in all of Scripture, is leading our hearts to look heavenward and know and understand we were created for something eternal, not something that's going to pass away. So wandering from the truth and someone should bring that person back. So if someone should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now in my notes, I underline, turn a sinner from the error of their way. And when I read that, I was just like, there's, there's something in me. I mean, there's something in me that likes to correct people. I don't, know, I don't know about you. Like, I, I, like, I, I think I'm right a lot. Um, I'm, I don't necessarily, I, I might not be. My wife says I'm wrong a lot. But, I mean, the, correcting somebody and turning them from the error of their way. When I read that passage, we could, we could really make some mistakes in the way that we engage culture. Like, we need to go out there and show them how to live. You know, like, we are a city on a hill. We have figured it out over here at Ocean City Church. And the rest of the world are dirtbags. Want to know if you should be vaccinated or not? Please come ask me. Want to know if you should wear a mask or not? Please come ask me. We are the city on a hill that tells everybody else the errors of their way. But that would be problematic in terms of, you know, being the light that people would see and say, that's what I want in life. These are the people that have figured it out. These are the people that... That they themselves are no different than me, but they're anchored to something that has changed them from the inside out. They have a hope that is not down here. They're looking somewhere else. Where would that be? I think the heart and the attitude, I think some of us, we, we, we look at the world around us, and especially in this last season of life, it's not been about charging the darkness to rescue people. It's not been about pulling the wanderer back. It's been about survival. It's like putting up a wall going, hey, is the church even going to make it? I mean, we've got, we're in all these different movements, all these different things. People are deconstructing their faith. What do we do? Is the church gathering going to go away? I mean, I just think we need to breathe because Jesus himself said, hey, get, you know what? A lot's going to come along the way, but nothing's going to overcome the church. Jesus is the head of the church. It's here for good. It's here to stay. All the things, the movements, the, the, the people that are leading, guess what? They'll pass away. They'll be tombstones for all of the current leaders all the, the current governments that are in place, and Jesus will still be standing when they have come and gone. There's one empty grave, and it's his. People are in the ground that have led, have been great leaders along the way in life and in the world, but one is walking around and in this room by the power of his spirit, and his name is Jesus. But when we look at this, I think all of us, have, and I've said this many times, when it, when it comes to this idea of evangelism or you know, turning a sinner from the error of their way, it just makes you uncomfortable. No, none, nobody likes conflict, you know, and I think most of us feel scared and inadequate to engage this culture that we're in with our faith, with the truth. And many of us have lost compassion for the wanderer and, and replaced it with anger. 
Now it's more about who's right and who's wrong. And I think that's not really what James is talking about here either. So I want to look at, you know, three things I think we have to know as we, as God's called us to, to charge the darkness. When we think about what it, what it means to, to, to correct somebody, to engage in conflict inside and outside the church. What does it look like to go out and lead people to the one thing that matters most in the end? And that's what James is talking about here. It's not about correcting, going, you're naughty, you need to fix that. The overall and overarching idea here is we all need, at the end of the day, and I've said this many times, every one of us, as we walk in here, there's this one thing that all of us really need, and we just sang about it today. It's the idea of coming home, to recognize that he is so many things for us. He's hope for the hopeless. He's rest for the weary. He is. He is salvation. He is the one that, that welcomes the sinner and brings redemption and forgiveness. But these three things I want to talk about are things that I think all of us have to wake up and realize as we look at this passage. And I think in our culture and in our day, in the way that we look at the world around us, because I think there's a lot of people who will hear certain statements in church and you want to stomp your foot and go, yeah, that, and you've got somebody in mind. You know, I've got somebody in mind, you, you want to tell them, I saw their post on Facebook, they're an idiot, they've walked away, or they've done this, or they believe this. I was just arguing with them the other day, and yes, I'm going to send them, you to them, Derek's sermon. I know none of y'all ever do that, because I know i got like 12 watches on YouTube. Um, I'm kidding, self-deprecating. Anyway, three things, let's dive in. The first one, I think, is one of the most important that all of us have to realize as we engage the world around us, and we engage each other when it comes to this. Because James is not just talking about going out. He's talking about dealing with the inside. I think the Apostle Paul would say, deal with the inside first. Because there's a lot of people wandering inside the church. And we have to know this. We are all prone to wander. Like every single one of us. No one has never not wandered or gone through a dry season or been in that place where they're wandering. Sometimes inadvertently and not knowing it. And sometimes just flippantly in sin and sitting in a chair in the church, hearing the gospel week in, week out, but wandering. I mean, we sing about it. One of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all wander. And if there's not a recognition, before we go out to correct the sinner or turn somebody from the error of their ways, I think the first thing that we have to do is humble ourselves in repentance and realize I'm a wanderer at heart. And the only hope that I've got is that the rescuer, the redeemer, Jesus, is the one that, that has come and redeemed me, that I'm prone to wander. I have to, just as the Apostle Paul would say, hey, I, I don't have anything that I have to pay for at this point because Jesus knows me and Jesus loves me and accepts me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Though I'm free from any and all men, I make myself, what, a slave to any and all that I might save some. And the Apostle Paul's posture in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is empathy. I don't want to get in the position where they are so that they understand I've not elevated myself. I understand. Paul knew what it mean, mean, meant to wander. He knew what it meant to be a religious person that missed the gospel. He knew what it meant to be a sinner. He says, I want to become all things to all people that I might save some. So his position was, I'm going to get in a position where I understand. I'm not going to fall prey and get absorbed by the culture and lose my bearings in Christ. But I want to get in the pit with people. And the step one of that is I have to understand that I am 
prone to wander, a humble recognition that I need Jesus every minute, every hour. I need him every minute, every hour. Because if we, if we don't get there, then the minute we engage in any type of interior conflict or interior, hey, correcting somebody for the error of their ways, we're lost. Because we've put ourselves here and we put somebody else down here. We always have to look at ourselves first because conflict arises inside the church, does it not? I mean, not here, of course. <laughs> but it does. Like, I mean, people, especially in the, in the last season, we realize people that look, you know, think they agree on everything, you know, in the last couple of years, it's like, I had no idea we agree on nothing, you know? And it's just gotten weird. But how do we, we've lost the, the, the knowledge of how to engage in conflict, and it's right in the Word of God. Jesus was the one that kind of brought the hammer down in the New Testament in Matthew 18 and said, this is the way that we engage in conflict. And it starts with patience, with compassion, with kindness. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, we're not going to go all the, way, all the way through it, but he's like, this is the way that we do it. You know, we do it slow, careful, and compassionate. I mean, it's going to be this, this process. In Matthew 18, if you want to break down the pieces of it, it says, go to that person in private. And before you've gone to that person in private, understand that you tend to wander. You tend to protect yourself. You, pretend, you, you tend to have an ego. You, you tend to have things that, that you want to be right about. So recognize that going in. See your own sin first. What? You better check the plank in your eye before you look at the speck in your brother's eye. So do that first and then go in, in what? In private. We tend to talk sideways. You know, we tend to want to talk to other people about the wanderer. Like, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? I heard this is what's going on. You know, they're with that kind of camp of people over here, and this is kind of what they believe. This is kind of what they think, and this is kind of the route that they're going. I think they're, they might even be leaving the church. I don't know. That's what's going to happen over here. And, and what happens if we've kind of come into conflict with somebody, or we really believe we need to go have a conversation with them? The mistake we make at, at some point, and we do it under the guise of, I need to get counsel, we come and we tell somebody about the problem, right? I'm going to go tell this person about the problem. Hey, did you, I just want to let you, did you hear about so-and-so that did the thing and did the, you know, I just can't believe that they did the thing. You know, this is kind of where I'm standing, this is where they're saying, are you with me or are you against me? Are you with me in this? Okay. I mean, I'm going to get another person over here. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? And then you end up grabbing as many people and putting them on your side before you ever go address them. That's not biblical. We tend to talk sideways. We call it counsel. I need to talk to you about this person that's offended me in some way with their sin, with whatever it is. And we, we grab this whole group of people and we all of a sudden find people in agreement with us, sit in the backyard, drinking cold beers around a fire and say, yeah, are we right? Yeah, we're right. Let's do it. Let's go get them, you know? Rather than... In humility going, man, I, I tend to want to be right. I tend to wander myself. I got to look at my own sin first. And as I approach this, I want to approach it in humility. Go to that brother or sister in private and say, hey, this is, you offended me. I know I, I may have something in there. And I just want to hear what, what it is that caused this thing between us or what it is that's causing this problem that you're having. Or if maybe you're trying to actually do what James is saying is, Hey, there's, there's a problem here. I see that you're going down. I see something's happening. I saw you kind of disappeared off the radar in our small group, and, and I've kind of heard a few things, and I just want to go right to you and have this conversation with you and, and talk to you about it because 
I, you know, I, I, I want to be in it with you. And there's people here that love you. Address it with them first. And then it says what? If they're like, hey, you know, I don't care. I don't care what's going on. You're wrong. And, and there's real sin involved, real offense involved. Then you, then you go to other people. Not in a, I want to gather other people, but people that they would respect. Not just all your homies that are going to yell at them but people that they would respect, people that they would honor, people that they would, and bring, let's all get in a room and let's work this thing out together. What happens most of the time, unfortunately, is there's silence in the face-to-face and there's a lot of side talking and then people just leave. People just disappear off the radar. Ask our elders. It's like, where did so-and-so go? We go through some of our care reports. We're like, people just disappear. And what I found over 18 years of ministry, it usually is not, I mean, it, it could be. It's usually not the preaching's terrible. I mean, I just, I mean, it's just not. Or the worship's awful. Sometimes it is. Like, he just never preaches the Bible. I mean, it's, it's usually personal. Most of the time, it's that, it's that way. I mean, people will say that. Well, we were just looking for a particular type of Bible teacher. No, you got mad at somebody in your small group. I mean, it's, it's definitely what you find out. And part of it is we don't we don't recognize that we're just as prone to wander as anybody else, and we have to approach every situation as we interact with people with humility. People will walk away. I mean, it says in, in 1 Timothy, people walk away from the truth all the time. And right now in our culture, it's very easy because it's comfortable to walk away from the truth. So we have to resolve this conflict from inside the church. So we have to know, first and foremost, we are prone to wander, approach any type of charging the darkness or engaging people inside the church with humility, with love, and understanding your own sin. Number two, love is essential and truth is absolute. Now, I had to say love is essential first because you know, we, we want to approach things with truth and love. Straight out of Scripture, it's a theme through the New Testament. Jesus obviously is the one that kind of coined that phrase, like we are going to come Truth and love, that is the way that we address one another. Sometimes we, we lean in the truth is absolute, you know, the Tom Petty, I won't back down. I've got my point and I'm gonna stick with it. But we, love has got to be essential. In uh, um, 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, love covers a multitude of sins. Like hatred stirs up strife, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, some of us wanna stay there in that place because we wanna avoid conflict. I read a bunch of articles and I'll spare you um, just in social psychology about everybody's a conflict avoider on one scale or another. Some people are like, I, I engage in conflict. I don't mind. I'm a truth teller. But everybody, human nature is we protect ourselves and our status by avoiding conflict. And if, we, if there is something called absolute truth, which there is when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, when it comes to where we stand, it's scripture. It's the word of God. But in the culture that we live in, truth is not absolute. Truth is what you make it to each his own. We live in a very individualistic society where truth is what your truth. I'm just going to live my truth. You know, that's, that's the world we live in. That's, that's where we are. It's this, this culture's truth or this group of people's truth or this type of truth. You can't tell somebody that this is true and right and good. You can't tell somebody in our culture that that's this, it's, I've got my own truth. I've got my own beliefs. We want to, based on our feelings, come up with our own truth. It's the essence of the Garden of Eden and sin. I want to do things 
my way. I want to be my own God. I want to live in this particular way. And I'm going to develop truth based on the world that I live in and what's around me and makes me comfortable and the way that I feel. And I remember Mike sitting here. I remember him saying very specifically, that's a problem, developing truth around your feelings. Like this is, this is just how I feel. This is the way that I feel inside. This is my tendency. This is, the, this is my instinct. It changes the way that you feel. Like the wind. Like one day you're angry, one day you're mad. I mean, we change our mind all of the time. We change what we think. We change what we feel. We change who we like. It is like a washing machine. There is no foundation in our feelings. The heart is deceitful above all things, it says in Scripture. And it's very true. I think about what an idiot I was 20 years ago. Like, think about perspective. And I'll, I'll look probably 20 years to this day and go, I can't believe I preached that message. Or I can't believe I did this particular thing. Along the way, you begin to realize that we, we know a whole lot less than we do. And we need foundational truth. To say there is no truth means hope is lost. But the beautiful thing about following Jesus is we have truth. We have a foundation. It, it is, you know... Everything else is going to wither and fade away. I mean, it's going to be like just grass in the wintertime. It's just going to blow away. But the Word of God stands forever. But we live in a world that does not like truth. So we tend to lean towards the love section. Or I think there's people in both camps. There's the truth people. Like, man, I'm a, I'm a truth, truth person. And then there's the love people. And you got love people and truth people. We've talked about that in here. And the love people are like, why can't we just all get along? Let's stretch and pull theology apart. Let's, let's open this up. Let's, let's read this from a different perspective. Let's, let's use the cultural filter to interpret the word of God rather than church history and orthodoxy and doctrine. Or rather than allowing the word of God to determine the doctrine and the orthodoxy itself, which is the way you should do it. And we, we end up going, I want to love people well. I want to make sure that if we, if we exist to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus, then we've got to become more flexible because people are coming that, are, that don't believe that or don't think that. Well, yeah. Here's the reality is everybody walks through that door sinful. Everybody walks through that door as a wanderer. Everybody walks in broken. All of us do. All of us do. But guess what? Nobody's excluded from the ocean of grace. Not one person. It, it's one way, Jesus' way, but everybody's invited Everybody can come. It's just the way of Jesus. And what we want is 19,000 different ways up the mountain. Oh, there's so many different ways up the mountain to reach this place we call life with God. No, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's one way. It's one way, but it's open. So yes, narrow is the gate, but anybody can get through that gate. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus, it's one way. So love is essential. Truth is absolute. Jesus said, abide in my word and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Know his word. We got to know his word. That is the filter where we, where we find truth. We don't compromise our beliefs, but we make sure that we're not defending subculture rather than faith. I think sometimes we, we defend our evangelical subculture that we grew up in more than we're actually defending the Bible because it's our way of life that we're defending, especially in the culture that we live in. We gotta make sure that, hey, there are things that we probably need to drop off that aren't biblical. We need to always examine 
what we're doing along the way, that this is about Jesus and only Jesus. You know, in the last season, it was, you had this kind of this team and this team, you had different people and different, you had an election going on, you had a viral pandemic going on. And, and I, the, the, the hard thing was, is making things seem insignificant in comparison to Jesus because there were big deals happening. But the reality is, is that he did enough to tear down the dividing wall of hostility, it says in Ephesians 2, that the two groups of people could become one. He was talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, but it's applicable to any group of people where there's division on planet Earth. We are all image bearers of God. And Jesus came to unite the two in his blood, where we didn't kind of court ourselves off in our own little ideologies at the end of the day that won't matter and they will pass away. We are a part of Team Jesus. Team Jesus. That's my political party. If somebody asks me, you know, well, where do you lead? Team Jesus. That's where I'm going. There you go. But love is essential. Truth is absolute. We can have both. We can love people well from a posture of humility, but we can also stand on the truth in the middle of a, a deconstructionist culture. And lastly is we don't fight with people. We fight for people. And I love this because I think, you know, if we come with a posture of humility, we understand the, the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, then we realize that we, we should be waging war from acceptance and not waging war for acceptance. And, you know, I was thinking about this, the essence of the gospel, and I was thinking about even the story I told about my, my friend Shay who was an outsider that became an insider. And several years ago, um, you know, when I first got into ministry, took tons of trips to Costa Rica with uh, high school and middle school students. And probably, you know, 10 to 12, 13 trips. Um, Leslie was on a lot of those trips with me. Danny Strickland was on a lot of trips with me. Um, and beautiful, wonderful time to do missions. But we would take free days, and we would go down to the coastline of Costa Rica, Pacific Ocean, different kind of wave if you're a surfer in here. Um, and we'd go to Hakka, which is not like the most aggressive wave, but if there's a swell coming in out of the Pacific, it can be thumping. And that particular day, it was, it was moving pretty good. So we didn't have a lot of people in the water doing anything. There was a few guys out there boogie boarding. Well, I'd kind of gotten off to, in a conversation talking with some people um, from our group, and then I noticed that there was a group of dudes thinking they were, you know, awesome and could just go out and swim anywhere in, you know, the Pacific Ocean. Tide starting to recede, and the runouts of the Pacific Ocean are pretty dramatic. And there's, it's probably 8 to 10 feet. I don't know if anybody has, that's a pretty decent swell in here. I see Mike's in here. You know, you know, it's 8 to 10 feet. In the Pacific Ocean, pretty significant swell. There's two breaks. One's breaking outside and is, is not as aggressive but really big. And then the kind of a small break in the middle. And guys, it's, these three guys, it's kind of, ended up in between these two breaks, and there's a massive run out. And so one of these kids, is, his name is Chipper Brennan. I always brought him on mission trips. He was like Chris Pratt. I don't know if you know who Chris Pratt is. He, he's like, in ninth grade, this kid, he, he had a beard that he just grunted out, and he was 225 pounds. He looked like he was in college. In fact, when I first met him, he snuck onto the college trip, and I didn't know. I thought maybe he was in the college and career trip. Like, dude, you're too old to be here. He was in ninth grade. He... Uh, He's out there swimming in the midst of like the turbulent ocean. And what I found out later is he was drowning. 
Like he was literally out there drowning. And, and uh, the guy that was the youth pastor at River City Church was out there at the time. Um, and Danny Strickland. Anybody know Danny Strickland in here? He was also out there. And Dan Gamage tells the story. He was the youth pastor at the time. And he said, I, I got to the point where we were trying to, Chipper was drown, literally drowning. He could not stay up any longer. So I tried to grab him, turn him around, try to hold on to him. He says, but I was already out of breath too. And I couldn't, I could barely stay up. And we needed to swim to the side, but we were trapped between both breaks. So there was no flip, float, and follow. So every time they tried to drift and get outside, the big break from the outside was coming in and pushing them back into the runout and just having trouble swimming sideways. He said, every time I would grab this 225-pound bearded man, he would climb on top of me and drown me. And he goes, I realized in a moment, he goes, I thought I was going to die. He said, I saw my family. He goes, I cannot believe that Chipper's going to kill me. Um, And... He, he eventually just said, I gotta, he, he just separated himself from Chipper and he swam, swam in. Couldn't save him. There was no way for him to rescue him. Um, end of the story, everybody survives. Danny Strickland, who we, none of us knew, was a fantastic swimmer, just grabs Chipper and says, stop moving, rips him. He, he also was a high school wrestler. Grabs him and just drags him in and saves his life. So if you ever see Danny, he would never tell you about it, but he literally saved this kid's life. Chipper sat on the shoreline when he got to the shoreline, did not speak a word for like a minute and a half, just sat there and went like this. And then immediately started crying, which we took a lot of pictures of because we needed to see the 225-pound bearded kid cry. Um, I love Chipper. If you're listening to this, he's one of the best tone setters. Everything was awesome always, even if it was terrible. He was like, this is the best rice and beans I've ever eaten in a foreign country of all time. But I say that to say, if if you're not in that position of understanding your own rescue, if you don't know that you're rescued, if you're drowning, there's no way you're going to save somebody. And if, if if you're in a position... To, to, to wage the war in the darkness, you got to understand that you're not fighting people. I mean, Dan realized he was in a fight. Like, he was trying to rescue him, but what happens? He's in, in this position wrestling with Chipper in the water, and both of them almost died. But for somebody that's stable, somebody that's been rescued, somebody that's not worried about it, somebody that's got a life preserver, somebody that has somebody holding them above the wind and the waves, they actually have a shot at rescuing somebody. The dilemma of of charging the darkness, the dilemma of us going out into the world to rescue people is we all struggle with ourselves. We forget our salvation. We begin to look at who we are. We think that we... We aren't even saved yet. And we begin to ask the questions, do they like me? You know, do these people like me? And so that begins to be the filter of how we address people that need to be rescued, to rescue the wanderer, to take them from the outside and see them come into faith. And we ask the question, do they like me? Or to, to pad our ego, we want to be right. So the sin of our own ego, the sin of of not even feeling or understanding that we're rescued, misunderstanding the gospel, we feel like we're drowning. So how in the world are we going to save anybody else? We feel like we've got to fix ourselves, make sure that that people love us, that people like us, that we've got approval, that we're accepted, that we belong. So that affects 
how we address other people. It affects our desire for compassion for other human beings. We begin to put ourselves in survival mode rather than in the pioneering mode that God puts us in via the gospel. He's like, you are the ambassadors now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You've got the ministry of reconciliation in your chest. Now you get the privilege of stepping out of your insignificant story of saving yourself and building a life for yourself. And, and you get to step into the grand epic story of God. But we forget that. We forget the gospel that we've been rescued. We forget that he laid his life down for us, changed everything for us, and now we belong to something. I love what you read about King David. In, a, in, a, in Psalm 78, he understood this dilemma. And Asaph's telling this story. He's a psalmist as well, a worship leader. And he's talking about David. He says, check David out. God chose David, his servant, took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep, and he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, in his inheritance. David, David all of a sudden understood and knew that I'm chosen. I've been picked by God. I wasn't even in the original lineup. I mean, they didn't even want to pick David. They were like, didn't even put him there. Sons of Jesse, they were all studs, and David was the, you know the creative guy playing his harp. But God reached into the sheep pen where he was the shepherd of the sheep and, and placed him as the shepherd over all of Israel, chosen by God. Not to fight with the people, but to fight for the people because he was chosen, because he was loved by God. Ephesians 2 says, before the foundation of the world, you were chosen. For those of you that follow Jesus, we forget that we were chosen, that we were outsiders and now he's made us insiders, that we weren't, we were foreigners now that we're citizens. We were orphans and now we've been adopted sons and daughters. We've been chosen so that we no longer have to worry about this dilemma of trying to figure out how to rescue ourselves. We're no longer drowning. We're no longer drowning. And now we have the ability to not fight with people, but fight for people. It's what David did. He knew that the, the battle and the war that we wage outside these walls is not with, with flesh and blood, like it says in Ephesians chapter 6. We don't wage war against people. We don't wage war against people. For the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the war that we wage. And your story, if you're a follower of Jesus, is you were a wanderer. You were like my friend Shay. You were on the outside. And God brought you in. And he's given you confidence that we don't tap into by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel that, that is working within you. Because if we forget it, we won't realize and recognize that we're wandering we certainly won't address the world with love and truth. And there's no way we're going to fight for people. We'll just keep fighting with people. And man, that just seems like what we've been doing in this last season of life. And as a pastor, as a church leader, as worship leaders, as a staff, and as plan A, you guys sitting in these chairs, we want to, we want to fight for people. The only way that we're going to do that is we have to realize that God fought for you. Romans 8 says that you're more than conquerors. Why? 
he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also give you all things? You don't need anything else. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No height, no depth, no conversation, no ideology, no comment that somebody made on Facebook. We are not drowning. Because of that, out in the world, we don't have to save ourselves and swim to the shore and leave people to go under. But gracefully, empathetically, in love, God's given us an opportunity to charge the darkness and in love and empathy, bring people home, bring them into the light. And at the end of the day, it all begins with every one of us heading towards home. It's what I needed this week. I think it's why God intervened in my talk. Because I just need to come home. Because I'm prone to wander. I just need to remember. I need to, I need to come back to the Father. And allow Him to speak the words over me. Hey, I've been fighting for you. You know how many scriptures there are that say God's fighting for you? To sit still because God, the, the, the war and the battle is won. I needed to feel that because I feel like I'm fighting people. When all along God's been fighting for me. And God's going, you can fight for the people because I'm waging the war in the heavenlies. So I think there's people in the room that, man, you've been gone for a while. Or maybe you've never come home at all. And God's calling you home to something beautiful, to something that will change you forever, that will set you free like never before. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love that you've swung the doors wide of acceptance and love, that nobody's going to love us like you do. Nobody's going to give us the assurance and the confidence and the humility that you give us. Just come, Holy Spirit. Just lead us as a church.